Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and the host for today's podcast. Dramatic Pause was created in response to the closure of live performing arts centres across the world by the COVID-19 pandemic. This closure, or greatly restricted operations of most art centres, has created a dramatic pause in the creation, production and presentation of live performances and has affected the employment of countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs. Some theatres and arts organisations have begun producing works for very limited audiences, but the industry continues to suffer and in Great Britain and the US, some theatres have closed their doors permanently, putting staff and creative artists in their communities permanently out of work. And in turn, these closures have put huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance and the local economies. Today, I'll be talking with well-known actor Alan Morgan about how these actions have affected theatre across Canada and the local greater Vancouver community. We'll also talk about his one-man show, which is coming up here at the Fire Hall, called I Walk the Line, in which he wrote it and performed in it. It plays here from October 15th to the 25th, in this year that everyone wants to forget, 2020. Welcome, Alan. It's great to have you here in this Fire Hall's physically distant studio in our cram production, or as we call it, our everything room. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Donna? I'm pretty good. Yeah. The sun's shining on you. You look grand over there. Yeah. <laughs> the sun is shining. Yes. It's yeah. going to turn to rain this weekend, but then oh, you it? won't. Yeah. Then you won't be able to be out gallivanting around on your bike. No. Thank heavens. I really got to focus <laughs> on this place. Yeah. You have a script <laughs> in your hand there. That I you're... do. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell me uh, a bit about how you got to that script? Now, I understand after you'd worked for a long time in the theater, and I remember seeing you. I'm going to digress here a bit. <laughs> I think the first time I actually saw you hmm. was in Hosanna. Oh, yes. That was at the fire hall. Yes. Uh, and you've gone from playing queens to kings to back to playing queens. <laughs> I was a leather. I was the leather lover in that. I wasn't Hosanna. In <laughs> oh, that's that one. right. That's right. And we were only in third term act, at acting school, and we went to Malaspina, played there. Then we went to City Stage and played there, and then we were held over here at the Fire Hall. And my heads, our heads, the two of us, too big to go back to school. You know, my friend David, he never went back to school. It was like. He's seen the lights of Broadway downtown, and he's not going back. He's learned it all, you know. And did you did you go back? I did. Yeah, I finished. I finished the semesters. I, yeah, I did all six. But it was odd, you know, because we were like, we were down here doing a show every night, well reviewed and packed, you know, and it was like held over twice, and we were like, yeah, yeah, tough. Yeah, but people loved it, and you were very good in that. And then nice. you came back, and as we were just talking about, you came back and became Bill Vanderzam. Bill you know? Vanderzam for <laughs> Escape from Fantasy Gardens. For I think we ran for months. It went for quite a while here, and then it do, also did tour. But well, on weekends, we yeah. played here on weekends. Yeah, yeah. and we re rewrite the monologue with Mark Laren Young every weekend, so it reflect, you know, and. Yeah, we had a lot. We had so much fun. I mean, the fun stuff with that show. It was crazy ass. Well, and for those of you who don't know who Vanderzam was, he was the premier of uh, of BC at the time, uh, yeah. and he had this amazing fantasy garden <laughs> <laughs> that was a tourist attraction. Yeah, and a biblical theme park at times. No, it became that afterwards, <laughs> which was wonderful. You could take a little train ride around some biblical sites. And, and Mark Laren Young uh, is is still very much writing, but he was a great writer of satire, loved uh, yeah. uh, loved catching up on the news all the time. So every that's why it changed every oh, week. Yeah, it was fantastic. And we had so much fun. I remember we because he used to say Bill Vanderzam used to say fantastic all the time. And yeah. I remember one night we decided with the audience we'd figure out a new word for him. And we gave them several sort of thesaurus definitions and stuff. And I think the one they ended up on picking was hallucinatory. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those were the days of the wild old social credit party <laughs> way back when. Uh, but how are you doing in these times? I mean, how do you, how do you think things are going? Oh, my God. The hell in a handcart. I mean, it's like. You know, I think your intro is, is so important because uh, there was a moment, or there a long moment, there has been a long pause, like, where 
no one was acting on any stages anywhere. And uh, just the silence, I don't know if it's a communication between, uh, it's like a, one of those odd things that go between hives of bees or something like that, but you sense, you sense as a performer and as a theater person, I think we all sensed that so profoundly that it was like, this is never, you know, I started looking at what happened before during pandemics and how did people come back after pandemic? Because it has happened before, you know, but there's, there's no instructions. Like we, we're left instructionless, you know? And I don't know that every, I don't think the theater is closed. I don't, as far as I know, I don't think that everything closed down because communication wasn't such that it is now. So right. someone might find out about the pandemic six <laughs> months later. Yeah. Uh, but I know during the war, there was it, it, a certain period of time in Britain that the theaters closed. But then, you know, there were some just galloped through. They were just not going to let the, you know, the well, Huns get them down. <laughs> well, and certainly in London, it made sense because they were bombing London. They so, were bombing London. So, so. so, but even, you know, uh, with all the trouble with the IRA, yep. the troubles, all those troubles, theater went forward there yep. and your bag was searched and in you went. Yeah. So but here it's, it was like, and it happened so quickly. Like it was like, I missed the news really. And, and all this, what? Really? Like everything's closed? Yeah. You know, I was catching up all the time and, and it was profound. And then, it went on and on and on and on. And it's not like it's been happening at a joyous time in the world either. You know, everything we know seems to have gone backwards or upside down or like... Yeah. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic hearing a kid... No, no, this was at the beginning of that presidency. This kid said... He, and he's apparently some sort of genius. It's one of those things you see on Facebook and you go, oh, oh yeah, he's a genius. And he's, his mom's making dinner and he's explaining what he thinks has happened is that one of the particle accelerators in Switzerland has broken one of the parallel universes. Universes. All of them, the, these theories are theories and valid theories, right? And that that's what's happened. And that's why Trump is here. And that's why everything just went upside down in a minute, right? And I was like, Okay, I'll buy it for 50 bucks. You know, <laughs> nothing else makes sense. Well, it's certainly a perfect time for conspiracy theories. Right. And and uh, conspiracy theories, I don't know too much about conspiracy theaters and it's series in terms of drama, but I'm sure they're there. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, look at the, the whole thing that's going on in America right now. I mean, that whole thing in the White House. It's a drama. It's like, it is high stakes drama. And there's an asshole running. It's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> they, they well this, we kind of think that this uh, this podcast is for adults, so we don't yeah. necessarily uh, ask people to restrain themselves. But I if can't. you if you get really down and dirty, <laughs> I'll stop you. Okay, <laughs> I'll say we have to cut now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I promise. I promise. I solemnly swear. So um, okay, so okay. you you have been acting since. Uh, well, since Studio 58, so how, yeah, did, I graduated. how did that happen? How did that happen? Why did you, because I know you're a baker as well, and I know I you've had... I was a chef. Had, I trained to be a chef. Oh, trained to be a chef, okay. I worked in Switzerland for a year, and then I went to George Brown College in Toronto and did an apprenticeship for three years, and then... As, as, a, as, as a, a baker, chef. as a chef. chef okay. Not a baker. Right. Baking is just something I like to do at home. Okay. It's, it's instant gratification. People love baked goods. Um, never underestimate the power of the baked good is my motto. <laughs> um, so I did that, and then I was out here, lived in Vancouver for a couple of years, decided it wasn't for me right then, went back to Guelph, and then I was offered a job in Fort St. John, of all places. And my friend ran, was the chef at a hotel on the Alaska Highway in Fort St. John, and I was the sous chef. And it was crazy. Ass. There was nothing to do in that town except drink. And I was living with Peter and his wife, and they were expecting their first child. So I started taking classes at the community college with acting classes and theater classes with uh, Fred, Michael Putonin. Oh, yes, yes. And Fred Galloway. And they brought up Todd Duckworth. And they were doing an amateur production of Cruel Tears with Humphrey and the Dump Trucks, right? Right. And I played the Iago th character. And it was, and it was set in... Um, it was in a truck garage on the Alaska Highway, and it was all about, you know, guys in garage, you know, as the, they were, yeah, they worked in a truck garage, right? right? And sometimes during the death scene where, um, what's her face, gets strangled by 
the Othello character, you would hear a truck gear down on the Alaska Highway outside, and it was just like spine chilling, right? And so when that was done, okay, I have to say this. I had a dream. <laughs> I had had a long, very long dream uh, sometime before, which meant I had, it was one of the ones you remembered, right? I'd wandered all around British Columbia. And um, at the end of this dream, I looked up and I saw in one of those street lamps snow coming down really heavily. So one night I was walking home from this performance of Cruel Tears and I looked up and I saw the snow coming down in one of those lights. And I went, I'm meant to be an actor. And I came back to Vancouver. I told the director that I was going to move back to Vancouver and become an actor. And he said, I remember distinctly, um, well, Alan, you've had a modicum of success in amateur <laughs> theater, but it's very different in the professional theater. The next time I saw him after that, way back when, I was sitting at a table in the arts club with Norman Browning, Tom Wood, and Stephen Wynette, and he walked in and I went, oh, hi, Fred. <laughs> he said, you seem to be doing all right, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I slept my way to the middle. <laughs> well, hey. <laughs> I think you got there on your chops, darling. <laughs> Let's circle back to okay. how you moved from uh, making a determination that, okay, it was time to sort of maybe do something else. Um, from cooking, you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I had lived in Vancouver uh, and worked at a, a restaurant downtown called Someplace Else Restaurant, which was a gay-owned and gay-staffed restaurant. It was a fabulous experience, but it party burnout. Like, I just burned out, and there wasn't much to that lifestyle. I wanted to... I moved from Toronto, and I'm born in Guelph, which is 60 miles from Toronto. So Toronto was, like, kind of away from Guelph from the people I grew up with and mm -hmm. who were a different set than, you know, they were the long-haired um, rock and rollers. And all of a sudden, why is Alan listening to the Bee Gees? You know? <laughs> and um, so I wanted to come out here and do that. But I burned out, and there was nothing to sustain me here, you know. So when I came back with this in mind, mm -hmm. I started taking classes because I had enjoyed the class in Fort St. John so much, you know, the theater games and... Be, before I went into the production, the theater uh, the class was fantastic. I really felt it was a, it stirred something in me. I I had been in drama in um, ever since Billy Goat Gruff in grade three, and I played Robin Hood in grade six, the chubby kid, um, because Mrs. Wilde thought I was the better actor. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't something that you hadn't already done. It, it, I you hadn't done it. You touched on it. But because in my time at high school, there was no drama department. There was a drama club, you know, which put on some show about bakers and things at Christmas time and whatever. That was about all it was. And that, but I, you know, as a part of that. But it never s presented itself as an option. There never seemed to be there was no drama teacher who was rah-rahing for me. which And probably no one saying, oh, you can actually make a living at this. Oh, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was like, you know, crazy ass. And so when I came back to Vancouver, I started taking classes. I took them at Green's Thumb with Wendy Noel and Wendy Van Reason. I took them at uh, the Vancouver Little Theater, all over the place, Carousel. And I would end up at the end of these, you know, sessions of teaching, asking the teacher, do you think I could? Do you think this is a valid thing for me to do? And uh, Wendy Van Reesen, Wendy Noel, yeah, they all said yeah, and they had suggestions. And since I had gone to a community college before, I wanted to go to a community college because I just felt more me mm -hmm. than a university. In hindsight, <laughs> I wish I'd gone to a university. You would have had a degree. I would always counsel people, yeah. younger people, to go to a university because, you know, you don't always fit in this big huge house the where you want to fit in but there's lots of other places to work in it and you still maintain a passion with it and in that whole time I mean both of us are seniors in this community in yeah. terms of being connected to this community did you have a favorite role is there a favorite kind of role I mean oh, you've had so yeah. many I've had some really favorite roles I always call them the sort of new yardstick roles because you do these roles 
it, sometimes they happen just at the end of a prolonged period of like, I don't think this is really. And then all of a sudden, you get this role. And I think one of the first ones was here in Toronto, Mississippi. Mm. And I played the poet in Toronto, Mississippi. And it was a great cast Meredith Woodward, Megan Leach, um, Black Moore, what's his name? Me. Uh, Ingrid stage managed, Roy directed. It was great. It was a wonderful production. I remember closing night, just, you know, weeping. Um, uh, and it was like a new yardstick. It was like, that was like, uh, every play was measured against that experience after that. And it reels you back in. You know, it's like, you're in, you know. You want more like that. And so that was, what, that was one of the first. There's others. Lilies. Oh. Which story? Lilies in Lilies. Lily was fabulous. That was a fabulous Lily's production. Like, mm -hmm. Really top talented, very talented young young men. There were. <laughs> you also did, of course, studies in motion with Electric Company and yep. the overcoat. Too old to take my clothes off. Too poor not to was my mantra <laughs> there. <laughs> Because I jiggled my way across Canada in that show. In the overcoat? Or in oh, no, in studies in motion. motion. Yeah, no, that's true. First was moment going, on stage I, is I don't nude. remember overcoat having that much no. bare skin. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But both of those, pro both of those <clears throat> productions actually really... Um, made well they made critical acclaim across the pro across mm -hmm. the province but also across the country yeah and uh, the overcoat went on to tour considerably yeah took you all sorts of, of places yeah we, i mean we did the vancouver playoffs did two tours across the country i think yes two or it was a big tour and then uh can stage bought it yeah um and that was just uh it was bedeviled a little bit because they really wanted to they thought it should go to Broadway, you know, that was their whole, um, and it was, it was a good show, it, it had a great integrity about it, and, it, and design and everything, but it happened at SARS, and it happened, you know, it just kept coming up against all sorts of things, the weekend that they had all these producers come, I was not in the second, but in, right. in the one in Cannes stage, they hired a minimal number of the original cast, and because they were bringing them in from Toronto, because they were, you know, rehearsing in Toronto, however, the person who replaced me and only did it that one performance, uh, two performances for two producers who managed to make it through SARS, you know, I mean, it was awful. Um, he got another gig. And so when they were going touring internationally with it, I got a call from Marty Bragg and said, hey, um, how do you feel about going playing the Barbican in London and um, blah, 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 and Adelaide and all this sort of stuff. And I said, well, I'm doing a show and uh, I could go to London, but it'd be really tight because Adelaide would be like the day after I closed this other show, Dirty Blonde. And he said, yeah, I'd have to fly for how many hours? And, and Marty said, dramatic pause. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're not 90, are you? <laughs> okay, I'll be there. <laughs> so then you continue to work and do all sorts of things that people have enjoyed and will continue to enjoy. And then you started to... Think about moving out. Did uh, moving out or ceasing no. to work in the business, or how did that happen? Because it was you a strange ending. Yeah, it was a strange ending because I'd and, you know I'd done lots of work across the country. I'd like, you know, I'd gone to the National Arts Center a few times. I'd played at in Calgary and Winnipeg, and you know I'd played all these. You were a favorite at Bard, that's for sure. Yeah, I was yeah. in Bard and Beach, and um, and at the end of I did the Tempest. Uh, twice at Bard and once at Studio 58, they brought me back to play. Roy directed it, and I played Prospero there for the first time. And, um, and at the end of the second production of uh, The Tempest, I sensed, I don't know what, I sensed, when I began as an actor, one of the things that always, it was it just got a note from one of my teachers about, oh, you need to butch it up or something like that. And it seems fair enough. I understood exactly what it meant. But I also questioned what is masculinity in the theater. You know, um, pretty patriarchal, our whole system. And so with Prospero and in tandem with Meg Rowe, who directed it twice, we didn't, you know, I said to her at the beginning of the first one was, I don't want this to be, I'm, I'm not interested in revenge. I'm interested in forgiveness, and you know, that mm -hmm. made too, right? And so we changed a little bit of the sense of the words, and by the time we did it the second time, I sort of identified three very 
important, I don't care what kind of man you are, there are three important, and the one was the giving away of your daughter in marriage, which is a huge moment, and it's the only family he has. The other one was the forgiveness of his brother, who deceived him, and, and then the other one was, in our production, was the release of Caliban, because we sort of went that Caliban is the dark side of Prospero, and, and that was what the anger was all about. And in all of those three moments, they were, um, we allowed them to be emotionally full. And I heard from people afterwards that their husbands, and that was what was interesting to me, was that their husbands were moved by those moments. And I thought, not so much my work here is done, but the work inside of what I wanted to accomplish, it felt like a period to me, and in fact it was. Everyone in the world cooperated with that period because there was no work ahead, you know. But that's a really interesting take. Well, Meg is such a, a Meg Rowe is a fabulous director. Yes. And uh, that she would allow and encourage and support you in doing that because so often that role is, is interpreted quite differently. Yes, yep. And uh, I think the husbands and the, the male, men that came to see that show probably were allowed to actually look at how they really felt yeah. and allow that to be experienced as opposed to trying to have this facade all the time. And yeah. I, I often feel, um, and I see it now, men trying to continue to maintain this facade mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily want to uh, continue to have, but they have to have it because that's what society tells them yeah. is expected. So yeah. very interesting choice. And you come up against it so often, you know, and, you, and many you you feel like, it's okay. It, it, we've changed enough that you can do it now. Like you can take that. And many men are, I think. Many, you know, there's lots of emotionally honest men out there these days. Yes, I'm, I'm not so sure that, that we have changed as much as you think. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not talking about a lot of people. God knows I have views on so, uh, so many things, and we all have views on so many things that we all think, oh, well, everybody's along on the ride for this. And then you read something like, <laughs> Oh my God, they are not. No, and so and we stay in our little protected. I think that's so often why theater people, call, we're we're family. We stay in families when we do shows, and we think of them as families, and we continue yeah. to think about the people that we work with as families because we we do see things in a slightly different way than perhaps the mainstream culture. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, what we what we do in the theater, I think, really, literally, is sit around and try and figure out humans and why they do something, and why would that human do that, and how can I get my head into being that human that would do that? And, you know, through discussion, and it's a creation of a community every Every time, time. yeah. And I love that. And then there's, I think there's this, my, this is my other theory, but it's in the other play I'm writing now, which is about, the, you know, the three communities that come together every night in the theater, and it's like, and one comes in the back door, and that's the actors. One comes in the side door, and that's the arts administrators and ushers and people that are helping in the theater. And then the loiter, the people, come in the front door. And then in that auditorium of magic, every night a new community is forged. And it's only because it's live, and we all have that experience together, and things change, and you know every night is different. It is so unique. It's the only, and I think that's what people, in talking to audiences that want to come back to the theater now or through the things that we've done over the summer uh, they really miss that connectivity uh, yeah. and it's something that digital platforms cannot overcome there's no. just no, no way to do that I don't think no and never will be I don't yeah. it's too flat it's just flat so let's move on to okay you you've got to that moment where you go okay now we have a a, 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 a punctuation mark yeah it's causing a pause perhaps yeah what do you decide to do next I um nothing. I freeze. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually you move because you're sitting here now. <laughs> yeah. No. What happened to me was I made it from so the Bard ended September, sort of looked ahead and saw nothing. So I sort of spent my meager savings, and at Christmas time that year, I took my mother's recipe book out and uh, box and made four offered four different cookies and sold them out of my apartment in the east side. Like I was baking fucking nonstop. And it was like a crack house because people would be coming at all hours of the day or night for their cookies, right? I don't know what my neighbors thought. But I made it through Christmas. It was kind of good. I, you know, I had some cash. Um, 
But then, you know, after January, nobody wants Christmas cookies. <laughs> and there was still nothing on the horizon. Did so. you think about going back to, to cooking? Like, I, I, for someone, I, I, anyone? Yeah. Um, cooking, well, it eventually I did. But cooking is... Cooking is on the backs of 20-year-olds, you know, yeah. with good feet. And very, <laughs> very demanding business. Oh, yeah, and very it's, demanding. You know, I think the pay was still the same as when I was in, doing it in the 1980. You know, it's like $12 an hour or something if you're lucky. So, no, I didn't. And I also was not, I'm not a big fan of the lifestyle of film. Film, I've done some film and TV, but the, the business of getting work in film and TV is just laborious and um, it's just, irksome like you have to wait every day till seven o'clock at night to figure out if you have something to do the next day then you have to learn all these lines well in the old days you had to sort of find a fax machine so you could get the lines you know and then learn them and where to go and all that sort of stuff and it was like they nobody in the room knew who you were you know uh and you'd had you'd go yeah he's in the freezer or something you know <laughs> oh thank you thank you very much you know <laughs> so it wasn't my thing and so i was lost and i I I tend to hide when I uh, am f fucked up and worried about my Need everything. a pause, yeah. Yeah, and so it was a dark, it was a very, very dark January, February that year. And my older brother, who is, um, uh, I called him the Bank of Frank. <laughs> <laughs> he had been a labor negotiator at a union for 25 years. And he asked me if I, if he got me a job working for the union, joining another union and get, working for another union, would I promise him to take it, keep it for three years? And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me, Frank? What? Why would I do that? <laughs> and then he told me that it was a union salary and there was all these benefits, and I just had to say yes because I saw nothing else. You know, I saw nothing else, and I was willing to take... I was willing to take a risk. I was willing to take some... I just wanted... I wanted some... Uh, I wanted some... Not prestige, but the I security probably security did to know that you didn't have to con be concern yourself about having a paycheck. I wanted to go to work. Yeah. I just wanted to do, do something, something each day. And, and as I'm purpose. older, you know, purpose is important in life, I think. And especially when you get older, I remember my doctor saying to me, yeah, this is a tough time between here and here. You know, work is a good thing for you. You need to. So I went. I, I took the job, you know. I was the mail clerk. And... Uh, that was pretty cool, and at, initially it was just like, oh my God, Donna, that first day of work was just like, you're fucking kidding me. I felt like a charlatan, right? Like, I know nothing. I can't even type. And you're like, <laughs> it felt like just nepotism, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm Frank's brother. <laughs> but eventually, over time, and, and the people I worked with were mostly uh, secretaries and assistants and clerks, and they were the people in my union, and they were the people I saw every day. This is a large building of one office, one person per office. So it's a honeycomb of offices. Nobody saw each other on a regular basis except for me. I saw them all every day. And for the secretaries and clerks, we sort of struck up conversations. And they were very excited because they knew that I was the actor, the gay actor guy from downtown, you know, Frank's brother. They'd heard about me for years. And I was coming out there. And these gals were longtime unionistas, many of them. And just a completely different, and suburbanites, you know, and just a completely different set of people that I would ever meet in my life. We would never really, I don't know the circumstances where we would have met, but we did. And sort of through, you know, my love of candies and baked goods and laughter, we sort of meshed and got on like a house on fire. They were like just... They probably <clears throat> looked forward to you stopping by with the mail. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was like the big highlight of people's day. And I started adding things to the cart, right? So I had a hump day fun fact that, you know, I'd pick it up on the Internet and put it on the cart and make up a nice label for it. And then that went on to holidays and special events and occasions. And I'd decorate the cart and bring it around. And people loved it. They just loved it, right? The, the arrival. And they started putting up dishes of candies because that would keep me longer at their spot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and lovely. I would have gossip as I got to know people and, you know, go around the building and stuff like that. So, And then, you know, after six months, I was taken in by the human resources woman, um, and she said, we are so pleased with what you're doing here. You have done so much to bring the three unions in this building, the nurses' union, 
the educators and lawyers union and us, the clerks unions, together and just continue what you're doing. We love you. I thought, okay, I'm, this is it. I can do this. I sort of envisioned a future where the, you know, the sort of eccentric mail clerk old guy, <laughs> you know, has a pride parade of his own with his mail card every day. And I could see that being kind of fun and wonderful, you know. It was not to be, but... <laughs> Well, and we don't want to tell the whole story of I Walk the Line, no. but you ended up turning this into a one-person show that you wrote and performed, and you've done another one since then, and I'm just curious about how you decided to start writing your own material. Well, and that was... Okay, the, so I wrote Pride, the Pride show about Pride, because... Um, Unions have been very good. Uh, unions have been really uh, supportive of uh, equal rights, I think. You know, it, they were leery off the front, but they were some of the first uh, groups that enshrined sort of uh, gay rights in their uh, constitutions and things. And so at the Nurses' Union, there was a week-long pride celebration. I don't know how many people. I think I was the only gay person there. There might have been a few lesbians, but, you know. Right. But it, but it was a big thing, and they would have uh, a week uh, uh, lunch hour, sometimes movies or a discussion, and I asked the person who was organizing if I might write a piece on pride, and they called it Zero to Sixty, because at that time I was 60. And just to try and understand that, because my generation is a generation that grew up in the diagnosis of homosexuality as a mental illness, mm -hmm. and where you could just be killed because you were that. You were that, you know, or someone would put you into conversion therapy, or something. You're, you're yeah. less than human. Yeah, you know yeah. that was my, and you grew up with that, and then we're in a time when, at that time, the you know, black American president of the United States thanked us for all the work we'd done to make love equal, you know, and it was like, that's a huge chasm to try and span, and I wanted to understand it. So, I wrote this thing, zero to sixty. There was about fifty people came from all over the building to listen to that. Um, whatever it was, lectures, story. Um, and it was emotional for a lot of people. And right as soon as I finished, this uh, Scots woman, she was a, I just loved her. She's really, yeah. got up, unplanned. I didn't know she was going to get up. And she said, I just, I just want to thank Alan on behalf of my family because I have a gay son. And I want to thank him for all he did to help our son be just who he is. And I was like, I just lost the plan. And so I had this then, I had this piece written, and, and then um, the second one was Mary Dupre, who uh, was a friend, is a friend, and um, she, out of the blue, sent me a letter, and the letter said, um, there's a check for $1,000 in here, right, whatever, take that out. <laughs> there was a check in this um, envelope, we want you to write a play of whatever you would like to write about. Now, how how did you know, or when did you know what you were going to write about? I mean, she, she she didn't tell you to write about anything. You decided to write about something that you knew, obviously. Yeah, I think it was in my mind that that was a it was a fertile a piece of um, something that happened to me in my life. It was quite fertile, and I um, I went through a few different permutations of it. But I talked to a couple of people who I'd come to greatly respect from the time I was at the union. And they were the educators. They were the labor educators upstairs charged with um, sort of educating the membership about labor law and labor rules and where and labor where ca it came from, unions. And they were, they were the sort of idealists. And um, anyway, I, I talked to them about, you know, and they were like, well, you should write about the strike, you know? And I was like, yeah, okay, you write the strike. And at one point, I, one of them, the women, I, I went for a, a supper with her. I, I just wanted to pick her brain about a few things. And at that point, I had vacillated. I was going to write about something else. And I told her, I said, ah, I don't think I'm And she said, she turned to me in this restaurant, and she said, you are writing that fucking play. No one writes about labor anymore, and you have to do it. And I went, okay, fair enough. I get, you know, signs and symbols come to me, and I'll just, uh, it was great. It was great. I loved it. Uh, yeah, it was important, I felt. Well, I think it's a very important piece. I also think it's really important right now. 
Yeah. When we're, we're uh, when we see our um, healthcare workers and those frontline people that are dealing with the senior citizens mm -hmm. and all the people that are taking care of people that have COVID or might have COVID, uh, I think it's really an important play to be doing. I mean, I know it's not about that, but yeah. just about the need to have some kind of uh, protection for people that do that kind of work. Yeah. Because there's lots of uh, people that aren't aren't really supporters of unions, but there, are, yeah. there is a reason for them. There really is. There's a is. huge reason. And I think the reason's going to become more, um, as, as unions are sort of formed to, you know, to stand level to management, you know, these people that own these mills, et cetera, et cetera. But they've gone, the management side has gone so far beyond that now. They don't live here. They are not people we even know. They're multi, it's a multi-billion dollar corporation and so the stiff in the street they don't really care about us they don't care about anybody living in this country or anything else they care about the bottom line and so to stand up to those people you need even bigger unions you need people standing together a lot and saying no like amazon it's too hot in here i ain't working here it's either the robots or me you know <laughs> and um so there's lots of that i think and and also i have to say that for me the union, the union that I was fighting against did not represent unionism to me anymore. That's not the members of that union. That's the management of that union at the top. Because many people in democracies have, and it's a dangerous time, they have learned that not many people vote. And with the right photo ops and the right opportunities, these people learn that. They can keep these cushy jobs, which they legislate all sorts of money for themselves, because the people, the members don't really know. They don't pay any attention because they're too busy. Right. You know, they're too busy. And so they pay an exorbitant amount of money every year to this union. And they do with it what they will, you know, really. And I, that's what irked me the most. It's like, you people, we are the least paid of the whole chain of people in this thing. And you're picking on us. What sort of strikes me like what's going on in America right now? And that I hold rail against. If I see that kind of crap and I recognize it and understand it, I can't stand it. I can't, I have to go or I have to leave. Right. And, you know, um, one of the things that was great about um, this was that we make community. When I went to the job, they said, People said to me, um, oh, your, your theater skills are so transferable. You know, it's going to work out well for you. And I was like, what theater skills? Like, I maybe have some good quotations, and I know a few <laughs> like and can talk okay, you know. <laughs> but what skills? I had no clue about those skills until this happened, this strike. And then I started to see, like in hindsight, when I wrote this play, when I finished writing it, I went, holy crap. That was pretty cool, the things that I, like, I already been, there was events in this thing that looked like a Brechtian theater piece, you know, just great production values. And, and I would get people to, can, do you think you could, the graphic artist, do you think you could paint those uh, gravestones for me? And they would do that. And, the, you know, and everybody wore costumes and they would follow what I suggested, right? And I rewrote the words to Solidarity Forever and they all learned the words to Solidarity Forever. And the first time I did this play in Victoria, some of the women came and they sang along with the, the lyrics, right? Well, the, one of the things you do learn working in the theater business is how to access your imagination. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have forgotten how to do that yeah. because from childhood they're told that they have to not think that way or they have to do things this way. So if their imagination says one thing, you got to get rid of your imagination here and go off here or you have to become an artist. Yep. And, and you know, this became... I felt that these union values and, and that what we were just talking about was in, um, I thought unions were supposed to help the working stiff and then in turn turn around and help more working stiffs so that we elevate everybody, right? And I didn't think that was, there was a feeling of, or that, that um, sensibility in the PR employers. And so I took it on myself to go, okay, here's, we'll show them that. So we had a food bank drive. We're all on strike, but we had a food bank drive culminating in a Thanksgiving potluck dinner. And uh, everybody wanted to have it in this little cul-de-sac. And I said, nope, it's got to be on the highway. We've got to have tents. We've got to have chairs. We've got to have tables, cutlery, chafing dishes. It's got to be whole hog. It's got to be decorated. And everybody was like, really? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and they went along with it. 
And it was one of the most beautiful days ever. It was a, uh, we had MLAs, we had MPs, we had the head of the Labor Council, and then just the secretaries and clerks and these women and men running through the fields collecting wildflowers to decorate these tents with was like, okay, my work here is done. You know, they were laughing, and it was, like, fantastic. You built community. You helped them build a community. Bingo. Uh, yeah, a, a community where they connected, and it didn't sort of sit back and judge each other on what was different about them. They yeah. managed to. Yeah. And that's, again, going back to that's what we try to do every time we do a show is build a community to support that show. Yeah, exactly. And and there's a great sense of, like, and you come together so close, you know, and yes. instantly. And that's what happened there, too. You know, it was just, like, it was fantastic that, uh, that, yeah, that happened. So, again, I keep referring back to your trusty bike and your trips around the city. Yes. And your photography career. You've become a photographer now, and you sell your work. I do. Uh, it's so strange. And as you're going around the city, I'm sure you see the dark side of the city a lot. But you've chosen to take pictures of the, the lovely, the, the beautiful side of the city. And, and I am sure that's a deliberate choice. Yes. Um, there was, um, because I was became friends with so many um, women during that um, time, and I've always just been, had a lot of female friends, um, a lot of the, my friends on Facebook were, um, well, they were isolated. They were in their apartments by themselves or sometimes with a partner, but they weren't out in the city. I live in a, a, a small apartment, and it's a bloody pigsty. And so I, if I'd had to stay in that studio apartment for this length of time, I think I would have gone bonkers. So Now, I presume it's a pigsty because you're not a tidy person. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a nice apartment building. It's just I'm not very good at the upkeep. At any rate, I just got on my bike, and I understood... The, uh, yeah, I read all the COVID protocols, and so at the as we learned more about it, I added those things in. But at first, I just felt as long as I was six feet away from people, I was not near anything moistly breathing, or and I was on my bike and I was alone. And I have always been drawn to flowers, and I take pictures of them. And I, it's I've always wanted to be an artist, and this is where I think the artistry really lives for me because I see beauty. I see, and I can translate it in a picture uh, to somebody else. And so a lot of people told me that this was the most important thing going on for them on a daily basis. And I took their word for that. And so I felt it was a, a mitzvah. It was something I had to do. I had to go out every day and find beauty and share it with my friends because it elevated them and helped them to get through the time. Well, you've done a fabulous job. We'll probably have more of those photos available during the uh, the run of your show. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm hoping. Um, get those framed. Get that one. It's all so going to be good. I'm going to ask you to do, uh, just for our wonderful people that are going to listen to this, um, not everybody knows what a dramatic pause is. Right. Do you want to show what is us? a dramatic pause? Or what do you think a dramatic pause is, Donna? Uh, I think it's a choice of timing, actually, to ins ensure that whatever you were intending to say resonates. Uh -huh. So it might be uh, breath. It might right. be a uh, uh, choice of how you say a word or how mm -hmm. you break up a word. I don't know. For mm -hmm. me, a dramatic pause is... Uh, what's on the other side of the dramatic pause? I mean, in a way, it's sort of what, where, you st where you ended and where you start again. It's kind of like what's going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> dramatic pause. I'm just thinking about a dramatic pause. Well, I'm, and I'm, most scripts have them. Certainly Shakespeare has a lot. They do. Shakespeare has a lot of them. And I'm wondering, but I could go on forever. Now I want spirits to enforce arts to enchant and my ending is despair unless it be relieved by prayer which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults as you from crimes would pardoned be let your indulgence set me free 
That's fabulous. That's thank Mr. Prospero. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Prospero. Uh, thank you for that. That was great. <laughs> I have Thanks. another question for you. Um, if you had all the money in the world, or if you were the man who ran Amazon, yep. what would you do with it? Hmm. I would give a lot of it away. I don't know why, what, how I would give that away. I would, I'd love to be one of those people that wanders around and goes, here's $500 and, you know, just, just take it. I, I do it occasionally now when I feel flush. I still have this idea that yeah, you got to give it away to get it back. And so sometimes I will just, um, oh, I do stupid things. Like uh, it was very hot two summers ago and, and I'm writing about all of this too. So it was very hot two summers ago and I, I was at St. Paul's. I had to do some blood work and um, I asked if I could... Um, I had a couple of containers with me, big gallon jugs, and I asked them if they, if I could fill them in the um, from the hot cold water taps, the cold water things that they had in the room. Then well, why? And I said, I'm going to take it down to the downtown east side. Could I take some of your cups too? And they were like, Okay, yeah, sure. So I went down to the downtown east side, and and it takes it takes courage. <laughs> it does, yes. But I and I remember specifically stopping at. Um, a bench in uh, Livingston Park over there. And there were three people. I have no idea what they were doing, nor do I understand their gender completely at the time because when they turned towards me, I think they were doing ingesting drugs. But I just kept on my track. I just went, you guys want some cold water? And they were like, no, we're fine. And I said, I stole it from St. Paul's. And they were like, okay, yeah, we'll have some. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a conversation with those three people. And that uh, meant the world to me. Uh, I found out a little bit about them, you know. I organized um, um, a thing called the Wenceslas Walk, and I asked friends if they had, if they were making cookies, and you would like to give some. I will go. I'm going to go Christmas Eve, the downtown east side, and hand out packages of your cookies if you deliver them to my friend's house. So my friend and I put together so many packages of cookies, six garbage bags, and we brought them downtown here. Another friend joined us, and we wandered around. I didn't want to stand somewhere and have a big lineup. I just wanted to walk and meet people. And we did. We would just go up to people and go, would you like some homemade Christmas baking? And they inevitably would stop mid-sketch, whatever they were doing, and look up and go, yes. And some of the most profound things, were, they were, there, was a there was a woman girl on the sidewalk. And she was smoking crack or something. And she, you could practically see her breasts. And she was under a sheet, you know, sort of. And um, we were very near the end of the evening. And we had a whole bunch of stuff left over. Like, we, people donated socks and scarves. And, you know, so we had all this. So this girl, she just caught the three of us, you know. And we said, would you like some homemade baking, Christmas baking? And she looked up, sort of mid-token or pipe or whatever. And she said, yes, yeah, yeah, I would. And she... Um, and then we said, do you want some socks? You know, we just felt for her. And during the time that we were there, it wasn't long, five minutes, she sat up. She pulled up her halter top. She tried to wipe her face. She, she was being addressed as a human, mm -hmm. and she responded as a human. And it was profound and powerful. And I have never been said Merry Christmas to so many times in my fucking life because I think they had somebody to say Merry Christmas to, you know? Alan Morgan, what a kind man you are. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, that it's not easy to do that kind of it wasn't. thing. Uh, well, it's easy to be, it is easy to be generous. It's it is. that often people are afraid to be generous. I think that is one it, of the, yeah, the problems we the, have. That was the brave part. And my friend, yeah. my friend John was like, he was just getting crankier and crankier. And we were on the bus, and it was just like, oh, for God's sake. And I said, look, John. You can turn around and go home because I'm going to just enjoy this and I want you to enjoy it too. It's going to be something out of our lives. And, and he just... Those people that you touch, they will never forget this. They will, they, they, that will be carried with them in their hearts and it should be carried with you and John as well. Yes. So we don't have to worry about you misspending all these millions of dollars that no, you see, might get. No, see, that's where I get to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Although I buy a nice house, I would yes. have a house. Yeah. Well, I think that would be okay because yeah. I have a sense that out of that house would come a lot of joy and generosity. So, yeah. hey, I can't fault you on that. <laughs> so I think we're going to wrap this up oh now, gosh. but I have one more question and that shouldn't go on too long, but um, I'm wondering what you think live theater will be like when we reemerge from this. Will it be changed? Will it be very different? Um, um, I think that live theater is an essential service because it's where our community, uh, the community of people come together to, uh, plays contain all sorts of things. And they contain ideas oftentimes, social ideas that we're not used to yet or need to get used to. Or There's a lot that goes on in a play and there's a lot of discussion that happens because of it. It's an essential, the Greeks used it for that, right? The Greek, that's where our modern theater comes from. But even before that, storytelling is just essential. Storytelling was the back of the cave, where it was the, we found the aurochs over here, and this is how we killed it. And then was, oh, 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 that's the story, and they would embellish that story. And that is also theater. That's theater, and that's, that's my kind of theater, because that's what I'm doing as I'm telling a story, right? And people, this, this, we have to have them, they're essential parts. I don't know what it's gonna look like. I'm hoping for a vaccine, but there's no vaccine for HIV AIDS, and that's been going on for fucking years. So I'm not holding my breath for that, but it cannot continue online because that's not this. I'm picking up my phone right now. This phone is like two-dimensional. There's nothing to it, and that's what's happening to our world right now. There's no depth. We can't see the back of people. We can't understand the full circle of people because everything's flat. It's like flat earth, and that's dangerous. It's so dangerous because we're accepting that as the reality. And theater, which is all the way around, you're looking at the whole human, you know, that they screw up and they don't screw up and they get better. And if we don't see that, anything can pass over us. They'll give us anything, you know? It's essential. If, we're not, if we don't have newspapers anymore, if we don't have, uh, you know, magazines anymore, if it's all online and sound bites, they can feed us whatever they want. The theater can tell the truth. Thank you very much, Alan Morgan. I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. <laughs> Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver, and Fire Hall's many individual donors and supporters. Please come out and see I Walk the Line with Mr. Alan Morgan, running at the Fire Hall from October 15th to the 25th. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to the Fire Hall at firehallartcenter.ca, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Fire Hall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer, Donna Spencer, and produced by technical director, Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website, www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies.